Feel free to follow along in the sermon notes that are printed in the worship folder today, as well as on the screens. Talk to a soccer mom, or talk to a football dad, or talk to your friend who is a techie, a triathlete, or a foodie, and you will hear passion. You just have to try these new kale quinoa muffins, right? Passion is a mix of elevated excitement and intense involvement that makes a person, you may call them a fan or even a fanatic about something. Passion is sleeping with Star Wars bedsheets when you are 35 years old. That's What's your passion? And how does that passion compare to your passion for God? That's where I want to go today, comparing our passions and a passion for God. Let me ask you this. This is a heart-searching question. Have you ever been at a point in your life where you have felt closer to God than you do right now? And if the answer is yes, what happened? Here are some diagnostic questions you can ask yourself. Why am I just not as excited about my career as I used to be? Why has my enthusiasm for my spouse and my marriage relationship just taken a bit of a dip or maybe even a dive? Why does my relationship with Jesus feel just too stale or distant or fake? Why are there parts of my life that seem like they're just, they're dead end stuck or, or the wheels are spinning or ready to fall off and they seem like they have no direction and purpose? Jesus was very clear about passion. Jesus talked about it a lot, if we were willing to pay attention and listen. And, uh, and one time when Jesus talked about passion, he said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, Jesus said. Do you hear the operative repeated word in those words of Jesus when he's talking about passion? All. All your mind. All your heart. All. Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of your income, all of your possessions, all of your mind, all of your body, all of your thoughts, all the time. Nothing less. There are many things Jesus will put up with in your heart. But being second place is not one of them. He does not want half-hearted commitment. He doesn't want half of an effort. He doesn't want half of your life, half of your body parts. <laughs> he, he wants all. C.S. Lewis said this, The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. It is either ridiculous 
or it's the most important thing in the world. So let me tell you what the greatest spiritual problem for Christians is. This is the greatest sin. This applies to Christians, not to others really, but to Christians. The greatest sin. Some think the greatest sin for being a the greatest sin as a Christian is being a Democrat. Some think the greatest sin as a Christian is being a Republican. Some think, people think the greatest sin for a Christian is getting a divorce. Or sexual sins. Or some people think the greatest sin for Christians is singing those old, ancient hymns that they used to sing in Latin. You know, it's none of those. Tell you what, let me let Jesus tell you what the greatest sin, the greatest spiritual problem for Christians is. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, these are words of Jesus, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. See, the greatest sin is being disinterested in God and apathetic about his word, shrugging our shoulders. The greatest Christian problem is having Jesus in our lives, but, but, but we adjust him around everything else. And having Jesus in our lives, but, you know, we tuck him in our pocket and we say, you know, I'm just keep, keep him around for when I need him, but I have so much else going on, I'm so busy, I've got to take care of so many things, and he ends up trailing way behind, and then we think we can reach back for him and just find him any time. And at some point in time, he may not be there. He may be done with it and spit us out. Now, that's the hard truth, but I have a second hard truth for you that relates to passion. The greatest sin for Christians is lukewarmness and disinterest and apathy, ho-hum about Jesus. The worst thing that God can do for you, I'm going to tell you what that is now too, the worst thing that God can do for any person, and this applies for Christians as well, followers of Jesus, the worst thing God can do for you is to give you your deepest passions and desires. We're going to cover this in Romans. Um, Check out your Bible or your Bible app and go to Romans chapter 1 because I'm going to give you some verses there in a second that tell you about this. In Romans chapter 1, while you're finding that, let me describe this. So your your desire is you you want to have a baby or you, you need a better car or a bigger house. Or a nicer boyfriend. Or the perfect job. Or a new boss. Those maybe go together. And then you pray about this. And you pray, Jesus, I know this is right. I've thought about this. I've been praying about this. I know this is right. This, this is what I need. Jesus, I, this, I know this is it. Please give this to me. And then here's what happens. He says, okay, it's all yours. And he gives it to you. But he gives it to you knowing things in your heart that you don't know or aren't willing to admit. He gives it to you knowing what the future is and your past. He gives it to you knowing 
that, that this passion and desire that you have threatens him and, and his place of number one in your life. And it does. And three months into it, it's ruining your life. And either you don't admit it, or you recognize that it's ruining your life, and you're not willing to do anything about it because it, this thing is possessing you. This thing that you thought you had to have, it's possessing you, and it's pulling you away from Jesus, and you're not willing to let it go. It has become for you an idol. It makes promises to you that it lies about, that it says it'll keep, or makes promises to you that it can't keep, but makes you think that it can, and it never will. That is an idol. And we make things into gods. Now, cue up Romans chapter 1. They go to verses 24 and 25. In Romans chapter 1. So this is earlier in Romans. We're studying Romans 6. But this is in the first chapter. Romans chapter 1. Listen to this. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. He gave them, these, these people he's talking about, he gave them their passions. He gave them their desires. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. God's going to be praised whether you praise Him or not. If you're praising your idols, you're not praising God. And He may give them to you. So look out. What if, um, what if those things that you desire, what if they're good things? What if... What if your greatest passions are very special people, your family? Okay. Having those good things and desiring them and having passion about them is awesome. But here's what happens. The problem isn't so much that, that we love those things or people too much. The problem is that we love God too little in comparison with all those things. And they take our attention and they become idols. And we worship them instead of God. Prince had passion. It's what skyrocketed him and many others like him, performers, to success. But it's also possibly what killed him. Being so driven, right? So, so focused, wanting to perform. Possibly, I don't know. I, I, maybe there's autopsy results and I haven't heard about them. But uh, for what I knew when I was thinking about this sermon, it's possible that his very passion, which was a good thing, became a bad thing and it killed him. So what you're living for can also be what you might die for. And if what you're living for isn't God, with everything else order underneath it, then you're a lot less alive than you think you are. If what you're living for is not God, but is an idol that replaces him, you are worshiping a dead thing. And it can't do for you what it promises that it can. Here are some good questions that I have um, that helps you with, when we think about the priority of our passions... And what might be a passion in my life that's replacing God? 
Let me give you some diagnostic questions to ask yourself. Where do I spend most of my money and time? What do I think about in those moments when there's nothing else to think about? What occupies my mind, especially when I'm going to bed and when I'm waking up in the morning? What's rattling around in there? What do I make decisions about that others tell me? What area of my life do I make decisions about and others say, that's kind of unreasonable or, or weird or imbalanced? And in what area of my life are my emotions most uncontrollable? Do they just, they come and attack me? In what area? What's the trigger that cues up my anger, my despair, my fear, even my elation, my, the greatest joy I ever experienced, positive or negative emotions? What triggers those the most often? Those are the places to look. That's where you're going to find your passions. Now, let's be fair and let's ask these questions about Jesus. Let's put Jesus under the same test of these diagnostic questions I just asked that have us focus on what our passions are. And when we do that, we'll find out what Jesus' passion is. Where did Jesus spend most of his time and money? How did he spend most of his time and money? Well, for the 33 years that he is here on this earth... He spent his time fulfilling the word of God, the prophecies that were made about him. That's where he put his effort and his energy, his attention into fulfilling prophecy and doing his father's will. And money? <laughs> sure doesn't appear when I read the Gospels that Jesus had a lot of it. He was a carpenter. I, did, did he have two jobs, rabbi and carpenter? How much income did he really make? When, when you read the Bible... It appears that that wasn't a big deal for Jesus, making money. Where did Jesus' thoughts go when, when he didn't have other things to think about? His thoughts went to, to sinners. He'd go and pray to his father. And he didn't pray for a red sports car. He prayed for you. He prayed for the people in the villages he would be going to so that he could heal them and care for them. When he had nothing else to do, he said, let's, let's go preach in another town. Let's go, I want to save, I want to hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes. That's what occupied him. What did he make decisions about where other people said, you're nuts. He said he wanted to go to Jerusalem toward the end of his life, which most people didn't know would be the end of his life. But some smart people, some inner circle people said, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you there. He said, I know. You're crazy. I'm, I'm doing my Father's will. I'm saving sinners. Where were Jesus' emotions pulled out of him the, the most, the quickest? When he was at Lazarus' tomb, he wept because he was facing death. And he was looking over Jerusalem toward the end of his life. 
He wept over Jerusalem because they killed the prophets and they reject these sinners that he came to save rejected him. Jesus' emotions got, erupted when he was dealing with sinners' spiritual enemies. You see a theme here? You see what Jesus' passion was? What did Jesus live for? Jesus lived for sinners. For you and me. Yeah, and that's what he died for too. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. Your sin of loving other passions more than Jesus? You didn't bring that here with you today. As a matter of fact, you don't have that at home and it doesn't follow you to the secret places. That sin died on the cross when Jesus died. And your sin of loving God too little? That doesn't exist. You just think it does. And sometimes you act like it does, but it's gone. That died on the cross with Christ when he died. More than that, you were there. That's what this verse says. You died with Christ, Romans 6 says. You were there. Your disordered passions and priorities were there. Your self-centered ego and decisions and mistakes were there. On the cross, they bled and died. And they are done. They are gone. They died with Jesus. Those things are not worth living for now because they're dead. They can't do anything for you. The God is alive. Jesus is alive. And Jesus died for your old self. For that self that had those misordered priorities, for those passions, for that loved God too little. Jesus died for that you, for the old you. Jesus died for you. And now, what's he living for? Jesus lives for the new you. And you are alive just like he is. That's the promise here in Romans chapter 6. Um, since a number of you are asking... Um, and th thank, I'm thankful that you care. I was sick for three weeks during April, and it wasn't fun. Um, I f actually, I felt like a dead man for three weeks. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't function like I normally do. I couldn't do the work, that I, my pastor work that I normally do. I was so foggy in the head, I couldn't drive anywhere. I was holed up in my house. I was lying on my back. I couldn't, I couldn't be me. I couldn't function. And it was, it was worse for one week um, when it was like that, and then it kind of came and went for another two weeks. So because I couldn't do what I normally do, did you notice? Did you notice that, that the world came to an end during that week when I was on my back on the sofa? Did you see this? You know, kind of like those apocalyptic movies where you see all, right, all the buildings falling over and a big wave coming. You know, did, did you see the destruction of the earth? 
Or at least it stopped spinning on its axis for a while. Did you see the sun stand still during that, that portion when I was the worst, when I was sick? Because I couldn't make the world move around, right, Mark? You're, see, you're seeing this, right? And did you notice that Holy Word Lutheran Church collapsed? That this, this church, this congregation, at least Holy Word Pflugerville, it stopped operating and it was done. People would look around and Where, where's Holy Word? I don't know, it's gone. The pastor's sick. I'm kidding, yeah. But that's how it felt to me when I was sick. I felt like a dead man. I wasn't alive. I couldn't make things happen. During that time, I was foggy enough where if I'd try to email for about 20 minutes, I'd like, get dizzy and need a two-hour nap. But I could focus, uh, focus for a little bit on short little sentences and, and short little tasks that didn't involve moving. And so I, I was able to spend time in short scripture verses and, and prayer, and in and out of that having foggy head came more of a focused heart. And it was during that time, when I was a dead man, that God had lessons for me about life. And his lessons had to do with what my passions were and what I thought my passions needed to be and about the influence that I thought I had to have and how others needed me and how I had to have my hands on the controls. And it was God saying, those are great passions, but don't make those passions bigger than me. And be careful about those passions in the first place. And I had to die in order to live. And on the other side of that, it feels great. It feels great not just to be better physically, but better in my head and better in my heart. To have a clearer understanding of passions and priorities in my life and in my world and what God, through that suffering and sickness, when, when I died, had lessons for me, and I'm glad he did. That's exactly what the Bible's talking about here in Romans 6. Look at this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. When Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. And why is that good? Because dead people aren't stressed. Dead people don't have to control the world. Dead people aren't enslaved by addictions. Dead people aren't jealous. Dead people are not self-centered. Dead people aren't weighed down by worry. You're dead. You can't do that. And what a joy that is for our passions when the Bible says, you're dead. You don't do those things. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Oh. Maybe it's when you're sick too. If I say this for your encouragement and your comfort now, and, and I'm challenging you. If you're feeling like you're being crucified, if you are running into parts of your life that have a dead end to them, or it feels like the wheels are spinning, or there is just is no hope, if you are so confused about something and you have and God is not giving you the answer 
Good. It means you're dying. The old you is dying. And Jesus is bringing the new you to life. The new you, not the dead you, but the alive you that lives for him and lives like him. And that's the new you. New desires, new hope, new life. It's like you're new again, and you are. Being new again is like living every day like you're a child. Uh, man, you think of being a kindergartner? Wouldn't it be nice to be a kindergartner again? <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have all those adult responsibilities and worries. You don't have to pay bills. You don't have to fill the car with gas. You don't have to come up with menus and recipes and make meals. Life is just handed to you on a silver platter. Oh, take me back to be a kindergartner. You can do that in a spiritual way. And I tell you what, that's living with childlike passion. You saw a little bit of that in Bartholomew when you saw the video today, right? Just a little bit of that childlikeness, uh, that joy. And let me go here. God has childlike passion. I'm going to read words for you from G.K. Chesterton, who wrote these, a Christian author, um, about a century ago or so. And uh, listen to what he says here. It's really interesting about God's childlike passion. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, do it again. And the grown-up does it again until they're nearly dead. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. So it may not be automatic necessity that makes all the daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that God has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we are. You see, so we sometimes assume that God has grown old and he's become the grouchy one and judgmental and critical like a grumpy old man. But God is younger than we are. We become more easily the judgmental, grumpy, critical ones. And God in his infancy just loves to say, do it again. Sun, rise, do it again. Moon, shine brightly, do it again. And he hears your prayers for forgiveness again. And he forgives you while he says, I'm doing it again. And he watches you stumble again and try to make it through life when you don't know all the answers and you're confused and asking him for help. And he says, I'm here and I'm helping. I'm doing it again. And he sees your desires to order your priorities and passions in a way that glorifies him above everything else in your life. And you don't use God to serve things, but you use things to serve God. And you try and you fail and you try and you fail. And he says, try again. Do it again. With eternal infancy and childlike passion. And it makes it okay for you to live like that too. So now what do you do? Simple, really. 
and that big challenge at the same time. What you do is you trust in your, your beautiful, wonderful God and Savior, in the one who sent his own son, his very own son, to die for you. You trust in that son's words to you about your priorities. And you're willing to lose anything in your life, anything, for him. And when you do, he promises, when you do, you will truly find your passion, truly find what life is all about. There's his words from Matthew 16, 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What are you living for? Live for the one who lives for you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are alive, and you're alive for a number of reasons. One of them is, you're alive for me. Help me to become like a dead person and die to the old me. The me who is too stressed and too weighed down with worry and, and too mixed up in my priorities and, and too lukewarm when it comes to my faith. As I die to that, help me to not be scared as I lose it and let it go. And keep your word of promise to me that as I, as I lose those things, I'm truly going to find a new life, a life where you are always my number one, where you are always my passion. Give me, Lord, a passion for you first, and then under that, a passion for others. And the things that I love and the gifts that you have given me, help me to enjoy them all, to order them right, and to, and to serve them under you, and to enjoy this life like a child enjoys kindergarten. Amen.